0: Vince Gutierrez here again gonna discuss an article that I read a couple of weeks ago when a group from Brazil added dry needling to guideline based approach for chronic neck pain and I personally don't use dry needling in practice and I actually took to Twitter to get some opinions on this article because I don't use it and the authors made a pretty strong statement in their conclusion that uh, dry needling should not be used as an adjunct or in addition to a guideline based approach for chronic neck pain if you look at the link there you know this was on the PT inquest episode 200 they interviewed the author I listened to the episode and it didn't the authors didn't answer the questions that I kept seeing on Twitter regarding this article, which was the, um, essentially the methods or the protocol that was used for dry needling was not acceptable to a lot of people. And, and it didn't really make sense to me because again, I don't do dry needling, but I'll throw this out there for everybody to, to see and hear. So again, neck pain, lifetime prevalence, 80%. The aim of the study was to determine the benefit of combining dry needling with guideline-based approach for chronic neck pain. You had patients that were recruited from the community uh, using the newspaper and social media. I thought that was actually pretty cool. They're using social media to recruit patients. Uh, You could see the inclusion criteria essentially from 18 to 65. That's what you typically see in a lot of research articles neck pain at least three months and so they used a time-based um, method for determining chronic pain average pain of at least three out of 10 and at least a 15 percent on the ndi and 15 percent is still kind of low in my opinion um but that's just me exclusion a lot of exclusions one of the things that i was trying to find in here and i, I think i sent a message out to a few people that are doing dry needling is why is hypothyroidism contraindication to dry needling I had never heard of that one so I I don't have that answer for you sorry I looked it up and I still couldn't find it anyway that was one of the contraindications If the patient had um, hypothyroidism they weren't allowed to participate in the study so this article had three PTs three different locations PTs had an experience of almost seven years um, when they accepted the patients, they stratified the patients into low level pain, high level pain, um, low level being three to six. Remember they had to have at least three out of 10 in order to be in the study. So low level being three to six, high level being seven to 10, and then they were um, randomized in a one to one ratio. Um, They had 40 minute sessions-ish, four to six consultations, so four to six visits over the course of four weeks. And they did that to try to mimic what actually happens in the clinic. And and again, I don't know about you, but in my clinic, that's what we tend to see. One, maybe two visits a week, uh, the the days of three times a week for four to six weeks, those are slowly going by the wayside. Uh, Participants received the rehab protocol, which was essentially guideline-based, but the PTs could decide how they followed the guidelines and again that still mimics what happens in the clinic and so this wasn't necessarily apples to oranges where they're comparing protocol to protocol plus so it's not a compared to a plus b it's mixture it's a one plus a two plus a three and some patients may get a two plus a three in addition to a one plus a two plus dry needling, right? And so it's, you can't necessarily say that the patients received the exact same treatments because the PTs could choose to use mobilizations and um, strengthening exercises. And, And they put in there in parentheses against manual resistance. And I thought that was interesting also. I don't know how often I use manual resistance. Actually, I'm gonna say it right now. I rarely ever, if ever, if never, use manual resistance as my choice of resistance for exercises. Um, So yeah, that's a little different for me. Uh, The PT decided which procedure to use each session and the goals obviously reduce neck pain, get stronger, improve range of motion, and then give you education. So the dry needling was done on the posterior neck muscles at the end of each session. And they assessed for the presence of nodules that were hyper irritable and hyperalgesic the needle i don't know what that means to anybody so that's the size of the needle penetrating 10 to 15 millimeters in depth and this seemed to be the biggest uh, controversy initially when i put this out there was 10 to 15 millimeters in depth and you know i don't pay too much attention because i don't dry needle and and a lot of people had said that this is superficial dry needling and you may not actually get to the muscle that you're looking to get to Uh, they were looking to get into the deeper muscles of the cervical spine also in addition to the upper trap and so if you're looking to get to the deeper muscles especially in somebody who has um, a larger BMI you may not get there at, at 10 to 15 millimeters in depth at least that's what others have said and then the goal was to elicit the local contraction response and then once you did you did vertical pistoning So a straight up and down movement, a picture like a piston in a car, up and down movement to obtain an additional six twitch responses. And again, there was more controversy in there that there was no rotation of the needle. Again, I've never taken these courses. I'm reading the research to determine whether or not I want to take a course in dry needling. Um, So far, my answer has been no, uh, but maybe I just don't have enough research read underneath me to convince me that the course might be worthwhile. So the outcomes uh, they looked at one month post randomization they looked at the average pain intensity uh, previous 24 hours and over the previous week they looked at the NDI score Uh, the authors and so now this is also important because this was agreed upon before at least this is how the authors noted it was agreed upon before that there had to be at least a two-point change to be clinically important for pain and a 7.5 point change to be clinically important for the NDI. Now, if this was agreed upon beforehand, awesome. You know, they're using that um, two point change being significant for the, the NPRS or 30% change. They chose two points. If it was chosen afterwards um, instead of the 20%, well, then that seems to be a little sketchy. Um, and you'll see why when we get to the results for that one month after 24 hour period secondary outcomes they looked at a lot of stuff okay so pain the, how much change there was was there any change in sleep pain catastrophizing uh self-efficacy um it was only powered so this research study was had enough participants to be powered for the primary outcomes not for the secondary outcomes which means that they had enough participants to be able to say that the first two outcomes the study would have um affected but those secondary outcomes, there weren't enough people to say that this study had effects on those secondary outcomes. Adverse events were were, uh, classified based on severity. Uh, Most everybody had mild um, adverse effects. So results. They started with 279 people. They excluded 163. So there was a lot of people who got excluded. And, And out of that... When you look at you know 126 out of 163 of those people, so essentially a great majority were excluded because they declined to participate. You know they heard they got to get needle stuck into them and they chose not to. Um, you know, so I mean I'm not a needle person. I don't like watching the needle going through my skin when I draw blood. Not a fan, right? That's just me. Um, some of them didn't have a high enough disability or a high enough pain scale. So a large percentage of those patients were uh, excluded based off of those three things. In the end, you ended up with 58 people in each group. So your guideline group, they followed the the guidelines for chronic neck pain and then your guideline plus dry needling group. The retention rate was pretty high. That's actually impressive to see a retention rate of 91 to 98% throughout the study. So they were able to keep track of these patients over the long-term. High percentage of patients were women. Uh, The pain on average was a six. Uh, Pain level over the course of a week was a six. The NDI, you know, a 28 out of 100, so 28%. Um, Mean visits, you know, 4.8, 5.1, not a huge difference in visits when you looked at whether they got guideline versus guideline plus dry needling. And over the course of a month, that's fairly similar to what I would see in the clinic also. No patient was discharged over the four week period. Again, that's fairly similar to what I'll see for chronic pain. No significant difference was found between the groups based on previous agreed upon clinical change of two points. That's important because because they established that two point change. There was a, a decrease in pain in the guideline plus dry needling group at one month, but it didn't reach the significance that the authors had agreed upon of two points. Aside from that one month though, um, that was I mean could it have been a fluke? could it have been um, there was actually a change and then you just didn't see a change further on over the course of time? Sure, but that was the only change that they that they noted and but that change didn't reach significance that the authors had already agreed upon. Again, mild adverse events you know 10% in the guideline group 13% in the guideline plus dry needling so dry needling is overall safe i mean it was only 3% more uh, adverse events and they were mild uh, in dry needling and so they they concluded that dry needling had a small but not significant reduction at 1 month there was no reduction no meaningful reduction at 3 months or 6 months And then, you know, even though it wasn't powered for this, they went on to state that, you know, there was no additional benefit for disability, global, you can read all that. It was adequately powered for the first two that they were looking at, pain and NDI, wasn't adequately powered for all the secondary outcomes. And one of the limitations was that they allowed for clinical decision-making as long as it remained within the guidelines. And so you weren't really comparing A to A plus B. For those of you that understand, you're not comparing, you know, the guidelines because they didn't have to stick to a strict protocol. You weren't comparing one protocol versus another protocol to where you can eliminate one variable and then focus on the secondary variable because the physical therapist could choose to do whichever part of the guideline that they wanted to do. Uh, you can't really compare apples to oranges, Hope that made sense. So (laughs) what I learned. uh, those that use dry needling take offense to the study. (laughs) So and and they may be right, because the claims that the authors made was that including dry needling with a guideline based approach had no effect. But really the, the the conclusion that I see from that paper is performing dry needling at 10 to 15 millimeters in addition to a protocol in which the physical therapist can choose what they wanna do has no effect. And so if used in addition to a guideline approach, it may not be prudent to use the same protocol as the authors did since this didn't give adequate effect, but there's no telling that going deeper might give a different effect using rotation, which I'm mean, learning a bunch of new terms, right? Using rotation could have given a different effect than just pistoning. So, I mean, I learned a couple of things about dry needling. Uh, whether or not they hold up in the research, I don't know. But that's stuff that I'll have to look into over the course of time as I'm deciding whether or not I wanna take a course in dry needling. Here's the link. To the article. You know, feel free to go read the article yourself. And thanks for watching. Have a good day. Hope you learned something. This podcast is meant for educational purposes only. The views expressed during this podcast are that of the creator, Dr. Vince Guterres, and do not reflect the views of the authors that are cited during the podcast. Again, this is for educational and entertainment purposes only. If you have a physical limitation or a pain, please seek out a licensed professional. Thank you for listening.